Good morning, Grace. If you have your Bibles and haven't already, turn in them, if you would, to Titus chapter 2. We just sang, do you feel the world is broken? Do you wish you could see it made new? And that's what Paul, I think, is addressing as he was in Crete and he saw the culture of Crete and he saw the ungodly living that was going on and invading the church and the household and all of the culture of Crete. And so he writes Titus this letter for the purpose of bringing into order what was in disorder. So we're going to be looking today at Titus chapter 2, verses eight and, uh, excuse me, 9 and 10. But we need to keep these verses in context. So I'm, and again, as we have done the last couple of weeks, I'm going to read verse 1 to 10. And I'll be reading from the NIV this morning. He says to Titus, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show them that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they may make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would open our hearts our eyes, our ears, that we would see and hear what it is you have to tell us this morning, Father. Teach us today here. In your name we pray, amen. Many of you know that our family has been involved in the foster world for several years now. And if you want to be a foster family, there's a lengthy process that you go through to be certified. And the last thing you will do in that process is you will go through a home inspection for your home to be certified to deem that it is safe enough to place a foster child in your home. And when they do this inspection, what they do is a social worker will come to your house and they will open every drawer. Let me repeat every drawer, and they will lift and look at the contents in every drawer. They will open every door, every cupboard, every closet. 
There is nothing that they will not look at. There is no privacy whatsoever in a foster home inspection. Now, you will go through this inspection, if you're a foster family, every six months. They will come into your home and recertify your home. In fact, our latest foster child moved on just a few months ago, and I was just told a week or two ago, they've actually changed that to every quarter now. So four times a year, you will have this inspection done. Now, what you have to understand is that you're given some guidelines for what the inspection is, but, but you have the Department of Children and Family Services, DCFS, and then if you have an FFA, which is another organization, they may sit on top of that. Well, they'll bring their own rules and regulations to it. And then depending on what social worker you have come into your house, they may or they may not apply them in different ways. So it's, it's really random. So I thought, you know what? It'd be fun this morning. I'm gonna bring some items. I'm going to see how you guys would do at a home inspection. Because, you see, they give you a list of things that you're supposed to put up. Lock them up. But as they go through your house, they find these other things, and it's like, really? I have to lock that up? And, and let me give you a hint. Don't use logic. You're dealing with a government agency. <laughs> Be done with logic, okay? Don't try to reason it. Don't try to go, well, if they did this, then don't, don't even try, okay? So here's what we're going to do. I got nine items here. You just holler out if you think this item should or should not be locked up. So in the kitchen, you have your sharp knives, your cutlery set, your steak knives, sharp metal object. Do you think these need to be locked up? Yes, your sharp knives will be locked up. Well, then how about your just everyday kitchen utensils, knife and fork? Are these sharp enough metal objects that we need to now lock these up? No, you are okay with leaving those sharp metal objects out. You get into your cooking utensils and you find a meat fork, sharp metal object. Do we need to lock this up? No, you do not need to lock this one up. How about if you just happen to have an ice pick? Another sharp metal object. Do we need to lock this up? Yes, you have no idea. That's the right answer, probably. Okay, we have one of these. It's a scraper to clean the, desk, uh, the, the cooktop off. It's got a razor blade in it. How about your personal razor in the bathroom? Razor blades, do we need to lock razor blades up? Yes, all razor blades. The rule of thumb is if it has a razor blade, it will be locked up. Okay, let's go to your desk or your office space. You have a envelope opener of these kinds. Sharp metal object, do they need to be locked up? Yes, they do. Don't ask me why this does and this doesn't, okay? So we get into your, your desk drawer again and you find one of these. It's a pencil sharpener. It's in every kid's school supplies. Will it be in your foster kid's school supplies? And let me give you a hint, think about how it works. It's got a razor blade in it. You ever think about things like this when you're making your home childproof and safe? This has a razor blade in it. What's the rule? All razor blades get locked up. I guess unless it's small enough because no, you do not have to lock this one up. What about scissors? Any scissors that you have in your home, do scissors need to be locked up? Yes. 
every one of your scissors in your house, I guess unless it's a child's scissors because they don't cut anything, have to be <laughs> locked up. Now, do you have a fireplace in your house? You ever thought about this? You have fireplace utensils? You know, the broom, the tongs, the shovel, the poker. Do you need to lock this up? You're all right. No, you do not need to lock up the shovel, the brush, and the tong. Yes, you need to lock up the fireplace poker. Now, remember, we were adopting at that time a 15-year-old. And when they tell you to lock these things up, you can take a, a cupboard or something, and you can put these things called tot locks, and they are locks that do exactly that. They keep tots out. Anybody over the age of five could pull it open very easily, but it works. And you put some kind of strap or lock, and then you put all these sharp objects that they say lock up, and you put them in that cupboard. I said to the social worker, what am I supposed to do with a fireplace poker? Where do I put that? She said, just put it out in the garage. But our garage is attached, and we walk through the garage every day. She goes, that's okay. Just put it out in the garage. Here's the key word. Put it in the non-living space of the home. Okay, so I took the fireplace poker, took it outside, put it over in the corner next to my toolbox, which has to be locked, and put it in the corner there next to the axe. <laughs> I figured that was a good place for it. Now, once she signed off our certification... Then I came in and I said, okay, we're signed off now, so now I can ask my questions. Because I had several. See, we were adopting a 15-year-old. So I said to her, is, is she going to be allowed to be in a bathroom behind a possibly locked door with a razor and shave her own legs, or does my wife have to shave them for her? And what about when we have food that needs a steak knife? Can she handle the knife? Can she cut her own steak? Or do we have to do it for her? Can she help us prepare food? Can she pull dishes out? Can she put them up? And you know this lock that we have, this little magnet that opens the cupboard where all this stuff is locked up at? Where do I put that magnet that my wife can reach it, but my daughter cannot? And she just kind of looked at us with this wry smile on her face because she knew exactly what I was saying and walked out and said absolutely nothing because she knew that these are the rules. Just do the rules. Why do I tell you this? Well, fireplace pokers are not the only thing Oh, you know, I didn't tell you why. You know why the fireplace poker got relegated to the lock-it-up list and the rest of them didn't? Because at some point in time, some child took the fireplace poker and inflicted great harm on his family with it. And so the fireplace poker is now, well, we locked that one up. They didn't use a baseball bat or it would be locked up or something else. They used the fireplace poker. So it's been relegated to the lock it up list. Well, that's not the only thing we relegate to the lock it up list because it gets misused or abused. We can do that with words as well. There are words and there are things in our culture that we look at and go, no, we don't like those. And we'd rather not talk about those on a regular basis. Words like masters and slaves. Words like be subject to, submit. Words like try to please. 
See, we live in America, we instantly go to 19th century American slavery and the ugliness of that, and we don't like that, and, and we're Americans, and we're rugged individuals, and we're self-reliant, and we do what we want to do when we want to do it, and we don't try to please anybody. I tried to please a parent, a coach, a teacher. I don't do that anymore. I do what I want, when I want, for pleasing me, and that's it. That's what we do in this culture. If you don't believe it, just go out and drive the roads. I mean, you people do whatever they want. And we see words like this and we go, we don't like them. We know they're in the Bible, but can we put them in our non-living space? Do we really have to talk about them on a Sunday morning? Can't we just move on to next week's verse? It's a lot better. For the grace of God that brings salvation has come to all men. That's a great verse. Can't we just skip these two and just move over? Second reason I tell you this story is several people have come to us and they have said, you know, we would like to foster. We would like to do that, but we just can't deal with the bureaucracy. We can't deal with the craziness and what they ask you to do. It's nuts. Now, why is it that so many people here at Grace even have decided to step into fostering and doing that? Is it because we don't see that it's crazy? No, we do. Why do we do it? Well, for us, it was because of two simple words that we'll see in our passage, and we see it eight or ten times in this book of Titus, and it's the two words, so that. See, so that explains why you do something. What is the purpose for doing it? And for us, the so that was on September 26, 2009, and tell you the place and the event that God called us into foster care. You see, if he had not called us, there are many times during this process that I've looked back, that our family has gone through this, and we said, you know, if he had not called us, I'd walk away. I couldn't do it. But there were many times when I would look, okay, okay, this is nuts, this is insane. Why am I doing this? Because God called me to this ministry. Okay, and if God's asked me to do it, that's a big enough so that I'll do it. So I think there's some things we can learn from this passage that makes us uncomfortable. So let's jump into it, and we're going to talk about three things, answer three questions. Who's Paul talking to? What is he asking them to do? And why is he asking them to do it? And then we will ask some questions at the end that just I think this passage begs for us to ask. So let's jump in. Paul starts off with, teach slaves. Now, we may think at first that this is just a left turn. Why is Paul picking out this group of people here in chapter 2? This doesn't seem to apply to anything else he's been saying. But the fact is, it is very consistent. You see, he's been addressing the household. And slaves in first century Crete and in first century Rome were a significant part of the household. A slave could have been an apprentice. A slave could have been some kind of indentured relationship. They could have been an, uh, uh, a domestic worker. Slaves could have had responsibilities over certain areas of the household. They were a large part of the culture. In fact, in first century Rome, there are some estimates that there were 50 to 60 million slaves. It was a high percentage of the population. Now, there are some... Um, distinct differences between first century slavery and 19th century American slavery. 
But that being said, there are significant similarities. You see, a slave is not his own person. A slave is a piece of property. A slave is owned. A slave can be bought or sold. A slave serves purely the will and desires of their masters. A slave could have had a good master, and a slave could have had a bad master, one who valued them or one who treated them subhuman. That is the reality of a slave. Now, what we have to keep in context in this verse, though, we must keep this verse in context because this verse, like others in the Bible, are verses that people will pull out of context and say, see, Paul is saying, slaves, be subject to your masters, serve your masters. He's not condemning slavery. He's telling them to serve well. So therefore, the Bible is condoning slavery. That's what it's doing here, and that makes us feel really uncomfortable. But we must keep this book in context and these verses in context. When Paul starts his letter at the very beginning in verse 1-1, what is his purpose? For the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Paul is seeing this culture where ungodly living is invading the church it's invading the household, it's invading the culture, and Paul is writing them to say, how do we correct this? How do we bring order out of disorder? Paul is not at all addressing whether or not slavery is just or unjust. That is not the question Paul is answering. What's the question he's answering? Well, he's writing to the household, and he's simply stating this. In a household, there are younger and older men there are younger and older women, and there are slaves. And at whatever position I find you, at this point in time, at the reading of this letter, conduct yourself in this way. Do I find you as an older or younger man? Conduct yourself in this way for this reason. Do I find you as an older or younger woman? Conduct yourself in this way and for this reason. Do I find you as a slave? Conduct yourself in this way for this reason. As a Christian, this is how you need to conduct yourself in that place where you are. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't understand slavery. I cannot comprehend being owned like that being bought and sold. So if we come to this text and right off the bat we see that Paul is talking to slaves, how in the world can we relate to this text? We don't understand this. So let me give you three ways that I think that we could relate to this text this morning. First of all, I can't imagine that there was any person who ever grew up and as a child said, my goal, my aspiration in life is to grow up and become a slave. We just don't do that. The reality is they are probably slaves because of circumstances, good or bad, but there are reasons why they are now in this place, in this place where they probably would rather not be. But Paul is finding them in this place when he writes them to give them instruction. So let me ask you this morning, as you sit here in your chair this morning, where are you that maybe you never thought you would be? What's happening in your life that you just never thought you would be there? In your job, having one, not having one, working for a terrible boss or a company, 
in your family, having situation and circumstances in your family that you never dreamed I would be in this place. Where are we finding you this morning? That's what Paul is writing to Crete. He says, where do I find you? And let me give you some instructions on how to conduct yourself in that place, and here's the reason why. Or, are you enslaved? Again, family, work, other situations. Are there ways that you are enslaved? You feel trapped. Another way you could look at this text this morning is simply this. If you're a Christian, you know, Paul starts off every one of his letters this one included, Paul, a servant of God, doulos, a slave of God. In every one of Paul's letters, he addresses himself as a slave to God. I am a slave to Christ. Do you realize you sang it this morning? Do you realize how much slave language is used as a Christian in the Christian faith? You know that 1 Corinthians 6 says you were bought with a price. Do you know that you are God's possession? Do you know that you are redeemed? You have been ransomed, as we sang just a bit ago. Do you know that there, in essence, has been a slave trade made for you? That you are a slave to Christ. Now, here's the great thing about having God as your master. He turns around and adopts you. And he makes you your son. And he makes you an heir. And he gives you full rights of citizenship in the household and in the family. But ultimately, we are a slave to Christ. And maybe that's how we can look at this text this morning. So Paul is talking to slaves. And what is he asking them to do? He's telling them some things that they should do and some things that they should not do. First of all, do not. He says, don't talk back to your masters. Don't be argumentative. Don't be disloyal. Don't be disrespectful. Don't be rebellious. Don't get to the point to where you would actually say to your master that you will not do what you are being asked to do. The word he uses here is the same word he uses in Romans 10 when Paul is quoting Isaiah 65 where God says, all day long I have held out my hand to a disobedient and obstinate people. Don't be obstinate. Now maybe for us, we need to look at this and twist those words just a little bit. Instead of don't talk back, maybe we should also look at it as don't talk about them behind their back. You know? Don't, we may not say it to them face to face, but I'll slander them behind their back. I'll gossip about them behind their back. Paul is saying, don't talk back to him. Be careful of what is coming out of your mouth. The other thing he tells them not to do, he says, is don't steal from them. The word is pilfer. Slaves would have had access or could have had access within the home. There were areas that they may have been in charge of where they could have had access to the home. And you can imagine, a slave maybe has lots of reasons why they would want to take something. They have nothing. So they want to take something. They want to get back at their masters. So they're going to take things from them. They're going to lift them. Nobody will notice it. Um, maybe they're just trying to earn enough money that somehow, possibly, maybe they can earn enough wealth to buy their freedom. And Paul says, no, don't take, don't steal, don't lift from them. Do not do this. What are we to do? He says, to be subject to your masters in everything. 
to try to please them. He says, work hard for them. Serve them well. Do your best for them. He says the same thing to Colossians in Colossians chapter 3. He says, slaves, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers. You worked with people like that? When the boss is around, they work great. But when the boss is gone, man, they're, slug they're just slugs. They don't work. He says that's the difference between character and reputation, right? Reputation is what we do when we're being watched. Character is what we do when nobody's looking. Paul says don't serve that way. Don't serve as men pleasers. But he said serve in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord, not to men. Why? Knowing that the Lord will receive, uh, that you, that, that from the Lord, you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. He says, ultimately, what you need to remember is you serve Christ. Serve them well. Ephesians 6 says the same thing. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. That's a tall order. Obey your master as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. You see, ultimately, you are serving the Lord Christ. And Paul says, no, you serve your masters well. Serve them wholeheartedly. Don't give them eye service, but you do your best. You try to please them because ultimately, what are you doing? You are serving Christ. Then he also says to them, show them that you can be fully trusted. Who's the most trustworthy slave in the Bible? Thought about that? Now remember when somebody asks you a question in church and you're not sure what the answer is, you say, Jesus. <laughs> Do you remember a couple weeks ago when Rob, or a couple months ago when Rob Price preached on that passage in 2 Philippians, Philippians 2? That great passage of Jesus who being in the form of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking, by adding and what is the first thing Paul says he added? By taking the form of a servant, doulos, slave. And what does that passage end with? And he was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You see, Jesus was a totally trustworthy slave. He was given a task by his father, a task which was pay a debt that he did not owe for a crime he did not commit. And he went to the cross totally trustworthy to go there. And Paul is saying to slaves, no, no, no. Serve your masters well. Show that you can be fully trustworthy. Imitate Christ to your slaves, to your masters. Ultimately, what, what he's telling the Cretan slaves, what he's saying to them is be countercultural. 
See, this is counter to their culture. Go back to chapter 1. Remember at the end of chapter 1, Paul says one of their own prophets has said what? Cretans are always liars. How many liars do you trust? You don't. Paul says, no, 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 don't be a liar. Show them that you can be fully trusted. He said, serve them well. Well, they're lazy gluttons. No, 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 don't be lazy gluttons. You serve them well. They're evil brutes. No, you don't steal from them. You don't take from them. You don't try to get back at them. Paul's asking them to be countercultural, to stand out from what is going in the culture there today. Why? Why? So that their masters can look at them and think what neat slaves they have? so that other people will want to hang around them because they're such good people, so that they will have a great reputation, so that they'll gain notoriety, so that they'll look righteous. Why, Paul? Why should we act and conduct ourselves in this way? So that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. The ESV puts it this way, in everything that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Paul says the same thing in Timothy chapter 6, verse 1. All you who are, all who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect. Why? So that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. You see, ultimately why Paul is asking the slaves to do this is so that you conduct your life in this way so that God would be glorified. We conduct our lives in this way so that God would be visible, so that God would be seen, so that God would be the one glorified. Have you ever thought, do you know that there's some so that's in the Bible from God? John 3.16 it's one of the first verses we often learn. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that, let me add a so in there, so that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Who's the whosoever? It's us. It's us. We're going to get to Titus chapter 3 in a couple weeks. It's going to say he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy dot, 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 two verses later, so that, having been justified by his grace, he might, no, it's not he might, it's we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. You see, God's got to sow that too, and it was for us. He did a lot of what he did for us, and he found us to be worthy and needing of it. And Paul is saying to the slaves, can you conduct yourself in this way so that God will be held up, so that people will be, see God? I mean, think about it. If you're a Christian slave and you have an unbelieving master, who has more? The Christian slave. Because Paul's not talking about temporal. He's talking about eternal. And the Christian slave has something that his master does not have. And if you can conduct your life in a way that you can hold up, the teaching of God our Savior is attractive. That the, the non-Christian master may see that and be drawn to that. The word that Paul uses there for attractive is a word that's sometimes used to, to describe the arranging of jewels. 
today at two o'clock, so what is that, in about three and a half hours, will mark exactly 35 years from the time that Renee and I walked out on a platform and exchanged vows and were married. When we got married, being a young guy getting out of college and trying to set up a home, and I didn't have a lot of money, so when we got engaged, I bought her the best ring I could afford, which was not much. It was a small, simple ring. Years later, for our 12th anniversary, I'd finally been able to save up to buy her the ring that I wanted her to have. And we went to the jewelers, and she described it briefly to the jeweler, and, and he pulled out the stones, and they looked through all the stones that she was considering for the ring, and they looked through them with the magnifying glass to make sure they were just the right stone. And once they got all the stones selected, then they started to talk about the setting in detail. You ever thought what the purpose of a setting is? It's to take a stone and just hold it up and say, look at it. It's beautiful. See, the teaching about God our Savior is like that stone. In your life, in my life, in these slaves' lives, is a setting where we have the opportunity to take that stone and hold it up and show it as beautiful and attractive. Now, here's one thing that's intriguing. Paul's telling this to slaves. Slaves are the bottom of the totem pole. Slaves, they're not the apostles. They're not the elders. They're not the bigwigs in society. They're slaves. And Paul says, I want you to even know, if you are at the bottom rung of the totem pole, if you think you're the least of the least, even you can hold up the teaching of God our Savior and show it as attractive. In the place where we find you today, See, you can do that wherever you are found today. You can take the teaching of God our Savior and show it as attractive. But there's some questions that immediately hit me when I was studying on this text. The first is simply this. Are there areas in our life where we do not do that? Is there an area in your life, in my life, where we do not hold up the teaching of God our Savior as attractive? In fact, we're probably throwing mud on it. And I would encourage you that if there's an area in your life, as we even did this earlier in the service, that you would confess that to God, that you would allow the Holy Spirit to work with you to transform that area of your life. Remember, we are justified 100% by God, but sanctification is a collaborative process. It's not a passive process. Romans 8 says that if by the Spirit you put death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Titus 3, you're going to read, he saved us through the washing of rebirth, of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit is going to work with us in those areas. So I would encourage you to confess those areas and ask the Holy Spirit to work in your heart to continue to transform you in those places where we do not hold the teaching of God our Savior up as attractive. Second question that's begged to me by this text, is it worth it? Is it worth it? See, so it's like two sides of an equation. It's like if you do this, this, this is the outcome that can happen. You go to the store, you spend X dollars, you can buy this item. Well, is it worth it? If it's just of equal value, then maybe we'd do it if we need it. Okay, six, one, half dozen. If this is of greater value than this, and I can guarantee you, you're not going to do that for this. 
But if this is of greater value, if we see the teaching of God our Savior as eternal, incredible value, then whatever God would ask us to do, we would graciously do because it's worth it. So does Paul think it's worth it? Let's look at some of his writings. Again, in Colossians chapter 2. I went too far. Let's go back one. Colossians chapter 1. This is the verse where we get our mission statement from. Paul says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and generations but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect, mature in Christ Jesus. To this end I now labor, striving according to his working that works in me mightily. This is worth it. Paul says, I have given my life to this. I have worked tirelessly for this. Look at Ephesians 2. Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise without hope and without God in the world. He says, do you guys remember that? But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you also are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. He says, that's worth it. Christ in you, that we now have the living God in us. And Paul says, this has been hidden from ages and generations, and I will labor tirelessly to present that, to teach that to people. It's worth it. Now, I can imagine some slave coming to Paul and saying, well, Paul, I don't have one of those masters that treats me well, that sees my value in his household. I have a master who treats me as subhuman, who abuses me, 
Paul, is that worth it? Paul writes to the church of Galatia, to churches of Galatia, and again, he's refuting incorrect teaching, even to the point of having to take on Peter at one point, he says. But he gets to the very end of that book, and in, I think, chapter 6, verse 17, he says, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Now, I've always understood that passage to be Paul referring to what he talks about in 2 Corinthians 11 with all the abuse, the beatings, and everything that happens to him. I understood it to mean that. But when I was studying for this, I found out what the word was. It's the only place that that word is used in the Bible. It's an unusual word. It's the Greek word stigmata. It's the word from which we get stigma. But more significantly, it was the word that was used at that time to describe the branding of a slave. Paul says, I bear on my body the brand of being a slave to Christ. And he would say to you, and he said to Titus, and he said it to Timothy, it's worth it. And he would encourage us to do the same. Finally, We've been talking about the teaching of God our Savior. And for many of you in this room, that is a true statement. But for some of you, we've just been talking about the teaching about God because he is not your Savior. You have never come to the end of yourself. You have never recognized your sin. You have never repented of it. You have never turned to God in your need for a Savior. But you could do that today. The Bible simply says in Romans that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It goes on and says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You can do that this morning. And if that's you, and if that is a choice you have made, I'm going to ask the prayer team members if they would go ahead and come on up. And I'm going to strongly encourage you that you would come up and pray with one of the prayer team members. If you want to come and talk to me after the service, if you want to talk to anybody who's been on the platform, somebody wearing a lanyard, talk to somebody. I don't want you to leave without talking to somebody. If that is you today, if you said, yes, I need Christ in my life today. Why? Because even you... In the first two minutes of your walk with Christ, you have the ability to hold up and show in everything the teaching of God our Savior as attractive, as beautiful. Pray with me. Father, I pray that you would just meet us where we're at today, Father. If there are places where we need to um, have you work in our life because we don't show you as attractive. Would you do that? Would you help us to walk through that? Would you help us to talk to others about that? Father, if today is the day that some have recognized their dependence and, or their need for you, would you meet them even now, Father, and would they have the courage to come and speak as they start this walk with you our Lord, our Master, our Father. In your name we pray, amen.